The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about defamation and privacy and other issues of privacy. I was reading this really interesting article in the Daily Journal about Courtney Love and how she was sued by her former attorney for defamation. And this was all about Twitter, and it just brought up all sorts of issues about how people quickly write things that could be very defamatory in Twitter accounts, and we hear about this all the time in the news, or on Facebook, or or even LinkedIn. So I thought it would be great to interview this wonderful guest who wrote the article. She's a fabulous attorney. In uh, right here in Southern California, and we are going to be talking today with Caroline, who is uh, with Cypress LLP. Let me tell you a little bit. Caroline Mankey is a partner at Cypress LLP, and she brings with her over a decade of big law firm trial and appellate experience. Carolyn represents companies and individuals in the entertainment and high-tech industries, and this is where solving legal problems requires not only an expertise in the area of things like intellectual property, cop- including copyrights, but an intimate understanding of the business and cultural surrounding uh, issues surrounding creative talent and innovative business and technology. She also deals with such things as publicity rights, invasion of privacy, copyrights, trademarks, and First Amendment rights, including free speech and fair use. And she is an expert in handling complex business disputes arising out of partnership obligations and rights, contractual obligations, interference with business opportunities, sexual harassment, and contests over ownership rights in real estate and other properties. So she has a, a very good background, and again, she's written tons of other articles that I saw in her vitae, and she's a, a trial attorney, so she's had lots of experience in in court, so we're going to just be thrilled to have her on. If you want to know more about her, you can, of course, go to uh, KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy, where we have a picture. She's a beautiful woman and smart. And we have her bio, and of course, you can link to her with links to her website. And then also, her website is cypress, C Y P R E S S L L P dot com in Santa Monica. So, uh, thank you so much, Caroline, for joining us. Thank you, Mari. I'm happy to be here. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about that article. That was just fascinating. Can you tell about tell us a little bit about the Courtney Love lawsuit against her? Sure. So Courtney has had now three defamation cases filed against her for defaming people on social media. The first one was by a uh, fashion designer that she had worked with, and uh, Courtney paid $430,000 to settle that one. Mm. She was then... Uh, sued in a second defamation case by her own former lawyer, Rhonda Holmes, from San Diego, because Courtney had tweeted on Twitter that uh, she was very disappointed when Holmes was bought off. (laughs) And those were the words that Courtney used, bought off. Mm. And so Ms. Holmes sued Courtney for, for defamation, claiming that, you know, that that's defamation per se, that it impacts her, uh, professional career and reputation. Right. And, um, the case surprisingly went all the way through trial here in Los Angeles. And what was interesting to me was, um, first that Courtney won, um, although that's not a huge surprise. Juries tend to like celebrities, so celebrities always have an advantage in trials. But what was more interesting to me were the the two main thrusts of Courtney's defense. The first uh, part of her defense was that she believed her statement to be true Mm. at the time that she uttered it, Um, and so it wouldn't rise to the level of malice that was required um, as a result of the fact that the court had deemed her lawyer to be uh, something of a public figure uh, as a result of her relationship with Courtney and this this very uh, high-profile relationship and, and high-profile case, high-profile client. Uh, the other thrust of her defense was that she thought that she was sending this as a private message to someone else, and she didn't realize that she was posting it publicly on Twitter. Hmm. Now, I think that's so interesting for a few reasons, um, <laughs> both because of the kind of dichotomy of social media in that there is a private component and a very public component to social media. And sometimes it's kind of a gray area between the two. Sometimes there are mistakes like this. And, um, you know, so so privacy is a... that question, it can really, it really comes into play in this uh, dichotomy between the private and, and public part of social media. Um, but what was also interesting to me about Courtney's defense is that Courtney has uh, been tweeting for many years, and even her own daughter has made a public comment that her mother should be barred from Twitter or banned <laughs> from Twitter. So, you know, I, I think it's interesting that, that her, her professed belief that she didn't know she was publishing it posting it publicly, uh, that that was found to be credible, I thought was very interesting. It is interesting. And, you know, for those people who are listening here who don't understand that truth is a defense to defamation, um, you know, if she really believed that that was true, that she got bought off, I mean, they, they really believed that she thought that that was true. But is it does it in defamation? Do you have to prove that it was true, or just in a, a belief that it that you think it's true? Well, I think in this particular case with Courtney, because Rhonda Holmes was deemed to be a partial public figure, uh, her Courtney's belief in the truth was enough to um, to disprove the malice element that uh, Rhonda Holmes would have had to have proved 
in order to establish her claim of defamation. Right. So, so what does that mean to the ordinary person in terms of, you know, we have students on campus that might get drunk and they might say something, <laughs> on, you know, in Twitter or Facebook or, or Instagram or whatever they're doing. And what does that mean to the ordinary person or even business people who might say something on Twitter? Right. It, it, you're right. It happens in both a, a personal and a business context. Um, people make mistakes or they, um, they say things that they don't realize what it's going to, how it's going to sound to someone else. You know, there are just tons and tons and tons of examples of executives being let go from their jobs because of something that they uttered on Twitter or Facebook that, you know, came across the wrong way or that, uh, came across as, as uh, discriminatory in some sense or revealing of corporate information or things like that. So the real lesson to be learned from this is that you really have to think before you tweet. Um, there was a, there's a New York state court opinion where the judge said, if you post a tweet, just like you scream it out the window, there's no <laughs> reasonable expectation of privacy. <laughs> right. And, you know, that's, that's such, it's so good to keep that in mind because you might tweet something and think, and you wake up the next morning and think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna delete that tweet. But it's already out there. And you can't unring that bell. You can't claw it back because somebody has already seen it. Somebody might have retweeted it. Somebody might have forwarded it to someone else or shown it to someone else. It's too late. Once it's online, it's too late. It's gone. It's out of your hands. The cat's out of the bag. Right. And if you do that to someone that is not a public figure, what happens? Well, if you do that to someone who's not a public figure, then, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lower standard. Basically, you know, if, if what you say about someone is, you know, reasonably likely to cause them distress or upset or embarrassment in the community or particularly with respect to their profession yes. um, or uh, <clears throat> the, the, suggesting that they committed a crime. A, anything damaging a person's profession, professional reputation, or suggesting they committed a crime, those are considered defamation per se. Yes. And that means it is, it is automatically deemed defamatory if it is not true. Yes. And so what, you know, what can happen then? What, what can happen to the ordinary business person who does this besides losing a job? Right. Well, they can get sued by yes. the person, and, and, it, and sometimes it could be an individual. Typically, it's considered defamation if you've uh, said something untruthful and harmful about a person, an individual. But there's also something called trade libel, which, is, uh, which applies to businesses. It's a business's right um, essentially similar to a, an individual's right not to be defamed, um, businesses can be defamed by what's called trade libel. And so people file lawsuits every day for defamation, just like uh, the fashion designer filed suit against Courtney Love for defaming her on, on Twitter, and Rhonda Holmes filed suit against Courtney Love for defaming her on Twitter. And now uh, the third lawsuit that I mentioned earlier that has been filed against Courtney Love uh, is by the the first plaintiff, the fashion designer, who has now sued Courtney Love again, this time for defaming her on Pinterest and on the Howard Stern show. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I guess paying $430,000 to settle a lawsuit wasn't enough to teach 
Courtney to uh, be more discreet about what she says about people. Mm, unbelievable. <laughs> so, you know, so when when someone has privacy settings, let's say they put privacy settings on any of their, uh, you know, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or whatever, um, how private is that really? Well, <clears throat> it's going to be private generally with respect to the rest of the world. But if you've got any friends on Facebook and you post anything to your public wall on Facebook, you are shouting it out the window because you don't know how many people are going to forward that post or share that post or show that post to someone else. And so there really is no expectation of privacy if you're putting something on your public wall on Facebook or if you're posting it on Twitter or Pinterest or Instagram or any other place where people have access to what you're posting. Um, whether or not you set your privacy settings to the, the, the most restrictive settings, those don't automatically protect the material that you've posted. They certainly don't protect that material from being discovered in litigation or from having a judge order a person to turn over um, that information that they've posted if it's relevant to a lawsuit. Courts uh, generally will not allow someone, they won't allow a litigant to just go rummaging through another party's Facebook page, just like they wouldn't allow somebody to go rummaging through the, your file drawers at home or in your office. But if there's something potentially relevant that you may have posted on Facebook, then the judges are going to order you to produce anything on a certain topic or anything of a certain nature that you've posted on Facebook. And the fact that you've uh, set your privacy settings as, as restrictive as you can has no bearing on whether or not that can be discovered in litigation. I remember, wasn't there a, a case, I think last year, about the juror who had posted something on Facebook and, and the judge wanted to get that information to see if the juror should have been thrown off the, the panel, right? Yes, and that is such an interesting case to me. Um, that's, the name of that case was Juror Number 1 versus Superior Court. Okay. And uh, the appellate court found that that was appropriate for the judge to basically order this juror to um, give access to the court uh, to, his, uh, to have Facebook turn over uh, the posts that he posted during trial. Because... Generally, during a trial, jurors are not allowed to post on social media about what's going on in the trial, just like they're not allowed to talk about what's going on during the trial with their friends, their family, or even the other jurors until they're in the deliberation room. That's the only place and time that they can talk about the trial. And uh, so if, if a juror is posting about the trial on Facebook during the trial, that's juror misconduct, and that can throw the whole outcome of the trial, and that's what happened here. Uh, after the trial, another juror reported to the judge that uh, she had learned that juror number one had been posting about the trial during the trial, and um, so the court required the juror to authorize Facebook to turn over the post. And even though the, the juror said, well, you know, they weren't material, I was just posting that I was bored or that I was still in jury duty or things like that. You know, he claimed to have not been posting any substance about the trial. Right. It still was considered misconduct because it was in violation of the court's order. Yes, yes. So how about, um, is it problematic for lawyers to profile prospective jurors? Absolutely. Um, 
there are certain jurisdictions who don't even have jurors give their names when they're um, being picked for a jury or while they're on a jury. They just go by, for example, juror number one, juror number two. And that is, for one, their privacy rights. Um, And number two, uh, their safety, for example, in high-profile criminal trials, uh, you know, especially mob trials, things like that, jurors could be at severe risk for their safety if, uh, you know, some certain kinds of criminals knew who they were um, and and could could interfere with their ability to render a verdict or, uh, you know, uh, go after them after the verdict has been rendered to punish them for their verdict. Right. Um, and also to protect against jury tampering, bribing, things like that, or getting jurors to talk about the trial. Uh, so, so there are very significant privacy concerns around uh, juries and, and jurors while they're doing jury duty. You know, and, and you know as a trial attorney that you want to find out as much as you can about the jurors when you're, you know, conducting voir dire to find out about them, are they going to be prejudiced against your client, or you know what might be a problem in the and so I would just imagine if if um, in in California you do get to know the names, right? Yes, correct. And so it's in a sense it's fair game. If right. jurors have social media pages, for example, Facebook pages, Twitter feeds that are public. Uh, the lawyers who are looking at these prospective jurors can very quickly, because most lawyers these days who are in trial have a laptop sitting in front of them right. or certainly a smartphone, <clears throat> and they might have jury consultants who are sitting in the audience who can quickly tap in that name and Google that name and find out something about this juror and, um, you know, maybe based on his or her friends or interests or affiliations, what that person's uh, political leanings are, what their history is, who their friends are. And so there's a lot of information that people can glean. And it's, uh, it, it's in some ways, it's fair game if they haven't set their privacy settings in such a way that people can't access that. Right, right. I was just going to say that, that if it's open, it's fair game, but they can't use any kind of uh, insidious ways to get, become a friend or have a friend become a friend. You know, I mean, that's a violation of our, <laughs> of our professional standards, right? It would be, yeah. It would be a, a violation of the professional standards for a lawyer to ask a juror to become a, a Facebook friend during a trial. Um, and actually, that has happened in the context of judges. Judges have some particularly unique restrictions when it comes to social media because of the higher standard that they're held to. Judges are required to avoid any kind of conduct that would undermine the judge's independence, integrity, impartiality, or create any kind of appearance of impropriety. So, for example, there was one case... um, a recent case from January of 2014 where an appellate court held that a trial court should have been disqualified where the judge sent a friend request to one of the parties in a pending case in front of her, and the party worried about the impropriety, did not accept the friend request, right? and then got a really adverse result in the family law proceeding (gasps) that was pending before this judge. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and of course the party believed it to be retaliation for not accepting the judge's friend request and the court of appeal said yeah that creates a real uh, appearance of impropriety right. and and the judge should have disqualified herself uh, when that motion was made. 
Absolutely. Yeah. How about lawyers? I mean, do we as lawyers face any unique risks when it comes to social media, too? Definitely. Uh, first of all, first and foremost, we always have to be so conscious about not revealing any client confidences. Right. The attorney-client privilege is sacrosanct, and our clients have to be able to trust us with everything. And if we can't be trusted to hold that in confidence, um, then our whole system would break down. Um, also, we have to be careful about violating advertising laws. Right. Um, at least in California, the lawyer advertising laws um, prohibit lawyers from uh, doing any kind of advertising if it concerns the lawyer's availability for professional employment. So we have to be very careful. Um, if we post on social media about, say, a, a trial victory, we can post about the trial victory, but we can't say, one another case, call me right. if it's your turn next, <laughs> right, kind right. of thing. Right. Um, so, you know, so there's a fine line between what's permissible and what isn't. And then, of course, you just have those those very awkward, embarrassing moments where somebody just posted something without really thinking about what they were saying, and it came out the wrong way. So, for example, I think it was maybe last year or the year before when uh, there was a discrimination and harassment suit pending against Paula Dean, and uh, the lawyer for the plaintiff posted some things on Twitter about Paula Dean and how he'd been deposing her, and he was he was. Uh, representing a plaintiff in a case against Paula Deen. And he said some very suggestive comments about Paula Deen in these public posts. And shortly thereafter, uh, Paula Deen's side made a motion to have him disqualified, to have him sanctioned. And here was this lawyer in court trying to defend himself for saying things like, I plan on undressing her, yeah. or I'm doing Paula Deen in a metaphorical yeah, sense. Yeah. That's just it's embarrassing. It's unprofessional. You never right. want to find yourself in a situation like that. Exactly. Exactly. So you got to be very, very careful. I guess is that the bottom line in terms of anyone who's listening here about social media? What's your best advice? Just like think my, five times before you put something out. <laughs> <laughs> my best advice is don't post anything you wouldn't want your grandmother, your mother, or the whole world to see. Exactly. <laughs> Well, what are what are some of the bigger privacy issues that courts are are dealing with right now? As a you know, as a result of like security breaches and technology, just well, soaring? some of the issues that are that the courts are really grappling with are uh, we talked a little bit about discoverability, uh, what what social media evidence and what electronic evidence is discoverable, um, because you kind of have to distinguish between the public parts and the private parts. And just because some of it's public and discoverable doesn't mean that the rest of it, the private parts, the emails are discoverable, particularly not if they're not relevant. So there are discoverability issues. There are also admissibility issues. Just because you pull something off of Facebook uh, because you, you found it on someone's profile doesn't mean that you know who the author is. You might think you know who the author is, but courts have recognized that there are potential problems with really discerning who the author is because anyone can create a Facebook page and put anyone's name and photograph on it. And it doesn't mean that the person whose photograph it is actually authored that page. 
And uh, another problem is that somebody can get a hold of somebody else's uh, username and password and post things on their Facebook page that uh, the the person who is profiled on that page didn't actually post him or herself. So there are problems with authentication in terms of establishing who really authored uh, something that you're trying to get admitted into evidence. Yeah, you know, Caroline, I, I had a case in which um, a woman called me from <clears throat> from the East Coast that she was an executive and someone had gotten her password and her username or whatever to um to with emails and was writing emails to the company trying to destroy her reputation within the company. Oh no. Yeah. <clears throat> and it was it was, you know, a, you know, I have a expertise in identity theft. So, you know, going through that and trying to get back and find out what was, you know, the IP address of what sent that, you know, it, yes. it gets just totally insane, you know, trying to prove that, you know, the, in fact, this this uh, executive was going to be fired for this. And, and the executive said, this is not me, I didn't do it. And uh, it became just a, a total mess. So you're right, anybody can take over and hijack your account and make you look bad. And so That's it, it would be very hard for a court to do that. That's true. And uh, what's also interesting is that nowadays, with, with the advances in technology, we can sometimes pinpoint, for example, the, the ISP address, and we can pinpoint where things are coming from. And it's amazing what forensic technology can do in terms of, for example, figuring out whether somebody has sent or emailed something from their computer or copied it or made copies of a document or printed it even or sent it to someone else. So that really is useful in those cases where you're trying to track the true author of something or you're trying to track what happened to a company's proprietary corporate information or trade secrets. Um, but it is still, there are logistical hurdles to that. There are cost hurdles. It can be very costly to have that kind of forensic expertise and to do that kind of a, a detailed investigation. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So how, what are the courts doing really with, with real private information? Um, discoverable versus non-discoverable? What's going on with that? Well, uh, actually, that's, um, that's where a lot of this kind of the forensic developments come in handy because there are so many new ways of, first of all, there's so much more data out there. Uh, when I first started practicing law and we had a document review, we would go in a big war room with 50 boxes and go through right. each page of paper. Right. It's not like that anymore um, because there's so much, because all the data is electronic and it is so much more voluminous than it was then. I mean, now you would be sitting in a building full of boxes of documents because electronic data reproduces itself so much and there are emails that just keep getting forwarded around and drafts that keep getting forwarded around. Nothing ever really disappears completely. So how do you actually sift through all of that and make sense of it and pull out the relevant information and produce it to the other side in litigation or, or put it in front of the court? Um, there are a lot of uh, technological advances. There are things called technology-assisted review and predictive coding that are uh, electronic ways of sifting through the documents rather than having a person or a lawyer or a paralegal sit and actually look through each page of the document and discern whether it's relevant. So basically what the computer is doing is a statistical analysis of a document 
to determine whether or not it is like another document, and that's how it establishes the relevance and the importance of a document to a case. It's fascinating because technology has made it so much more difficult to, you know, to look at so many different things, and yet technology is also creating the answer. So that's uh, that's good. We're we're moving along, and and technology is advancing, and you are wonderful. And we are really out of time, Caroline. But thank you so much for all of your wisdom and the great work that you're doing on behalf of your clients and technology and all those good things. So we will have you back again. Just give your website and it's time for us to go. Thank you, Mari. My website is www.cypressllp.com and also www.carolinemankeylive.com. Thank you, Mari. I really enjoyed it. Okay, me too. Bye-bye. You've been listening. Bye bye. You've been listening to KUCI eighty-eight point nine FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at eight AM and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 